grateful for the chance to be together and uh, have another chance to study God's Word together and hear from His Spirit. Thank you, Brother Jay, for that introduction. <clears throat> when I moved to Ghana 25 years ago, uh, the city of Tomale had one radio station, one, owned by the government. And they had this slogan, which uh, I found very humorous because they had picked it up probably from a radio station maybe in England. So every few minutes, the radio station would run this little advertisement. They would say, tune it in, turn it up, and rip off the knob. And I always thought it was kind of funny because it's not like there were any other options for people. If they wanted to listen to the radio, there was exactly one station. I really believe that what Isaiah is communicating in Isaiah chapter 6 was not that suddenly God started talking. I believe suddenly Isaiah got to a place where he was tuned in enough to hear the voice of God, which had always been speaking. I believe that the voice of God, and this is communicated many different ways through Scripture, I believe that the voice of God is always saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And that call is going out and going out and going out. What Isaiah experiences in chapter 6 is a, 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 a revival in his life, a place of, of uh, undoneness and repentance, a place where God touches his lips and declares him holy. And suddenly Isaiah, maybe for the first time in his life, is at a place where he's tuned in. And the verse says, also, I heard the voice of the Lord. In addition to everything else that was happening, suddenly I heard the voice of the Lord. And I want to really encourage you to be willing to tune out all the other things and tune in to hearing the voice of God. The fact is, is that there are, as we sit in this room, I don't know how many radio stations are in Cheyenne, but counting shortwave radio and uh, citizens band radio and whatever the police use, there are probably 50 different radio stations sending their voices and their music and their sounds through this room, but we don't hear them because we're not tuned to them. Human beings are not able to tune in a radio station without a, a radio transistor to enable us to tune. But as soon as you tune into one, you are also tuning out all the others. And so God needs us to tune out all the other fuzz and the voices and tune in his voice. And then when you do, turn it up, tune it in, then turn it up, and then rip off the knob. And just stay tuned. I'm going to keep listening to the voice of God. As soon as I get a little over here, I'm going to keep hearing the voice of God. For many years in the village, the only outside contact we had to know what was happening in the world was BBC shortwave radio. And if you've ever tuned a shortwave radio station with the old-fashioned knob, it is literally, I mean, it is just a hair. It's like, oh, that's French. Oh, that's Chinese. Uh, where's the English? And it would just be like that. That's how I found out what was happening when the Twin Towers went down. People in my village came and said, your country is under attack. And I ran in there to BBC and tried to tune it in. Sometimes it feels like that. We're trying to hear the voice of God, and it's like we live in a world filled with fuzz, and no generation has ever had more fuzz than the generation that you are a part of, which makes it all the more important that you tune it, tune it, tune it. There it is, there it is. 
There's a language I can understand. That's English. Keep it right there. Sometimes I could not remove my hand from the knob or it would change to another station. It was that sensitive. Now, that's not a bad picture of life, is it? I'm trying to hear the voice of God in my life. Fuzz over here. Oh, fuzz over there. Other voices. Other, go here, go there, do different things. You ought to be, you ought to do, you ought to buy, you should go. Where's the voice of God? There it is. Now just keep your hand right there because I want to hear the voice of God in my life. Amen? Thank you for that introduction. If you would humor me this evening, I'd like all of you to stand up. <clears throat> for those of you who were not here um, earlier today, I said to the young people from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if I seem to be doing crazy things, or if I seem to be doing normal things, either way, it's for God's purposes in your life. And this isn't too crazy. Some of you are already getting embarrassed, and I haven't even started. <clears throat> but I want us to do it a very, very simple exercise, and my hope is that it becomes a mnemonic device. That means something that helps you to remember something else. When Jesus was, um, in John chapter 4, when Jesus sat with the, the Samaritan woman at the well and uh, had all of that wonderful conversation with her, and eventually she goes back to start telling Samari the, the people in Samaria all the things that Jesus had told her, Jesus' disciples show up and they're bringing Jesus food and wondering if Jesus has gotten food to eat anywhere else. And Jesus says to his disciples... You say that the harvest is still this many months away. Jesus said, I want you to lift up your eyes because the time of the harvest is right now. I would like all of us together to look down at our own toes, okay? I want you to look down at your own toes. Most of you young people are thin enough. That's not difficult for you. <laughs> Look down at your own toes, and I want us to recognize that we, when we are self-focused, when all of our energies, all of our eyesight, all of our awareness is focused on our own toes, we are not able to see other people. Right now, as I focus on my toes, from what I can see, I am not aware of anyone else in this room. And I presume that you're standing a little closer to people than I am, so you're probably aware of people on your left and right, but no one in front of you. Now, I want us to very slowly raise up our eyes, and as soon as I begin to raise my eyes, I'm now aware that there are five other people in the room with me, and as I continue to raise my eyes, there are now 20 people in the room with me, now 40, now 60, now 100. Now you can raise up your eyes. He said, well, Jesus was talking spiritually. Y yes. But he used physical words to describe a physical reality that would put in their minds the spiritual truth. It would be a wonderful thing if you would begin to realize, maybe I'm staring at my own toenails a little too much because I'm not aware of the world around me. You can sit down. And so Jesus said... Disciples, you're saying it's still months away till the harvest. I'm telling you, if you would stop staring at your pedicure, that's toes, right? 
Manicure his hands, ladies, fill me in here. Manicure his fingers, pedicure his toes. I've never had one, okay? <laughs> I mean, other than myself, clipping my nails. Stop staring at your toenails and start raising your eyes a little bit. And as you begin to raise your eyes, you will become aware of a harvest which is white and waiting. Lift up your eyes. You know, there are an awful lot of people who spend their entire existence just like this. And some of them are spiritual people. Some of them seem to love the Lord Jesus, at least they say they do. And they want to live a holy life, but they just never get beyond their toenails and their issues and their struggles and what they're facing. They're never able to become aware of the world which is waiting. Lift up your eyes because there's a white harvest field which is waiting for all of us. That's just your free bonus for this evening. God bless you, young people. I'm grateful for the chance to share with you again. Um, I mentioned to you briefly um, about the Sent One School. There are brochures on the table back there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Sent One and Sent Two, but I would be really happy to have the opportunity to continue the, the sessions that we've started here, just four sessions, and continue with um, 12 weeks of mission studies in the, the, the base, the training center that we have there in Ghana. The brochures for Sent 1, which is 12 weeks, and Sent 2, which is 20 months, are back there on the table. I have a number of alumni here who would be happy to answer questions. I would be happy to answer questions. So um, there's more uh, information there. And uh, if you're interested, please pick up a brochure and correspond with um, either the, the phone number here, which is the mission office, or get my phone number. Phone number. I'm very happy to correspond with you. Amen. Our title for this evening is uh, very simple. I am not ashamed. My desire is not that you view that title from the perspective of Daniel standing up here and sounding proud and saying, "I am not ashamed." However. If we are a bit sensitive to making proud statements like, I am not ashamed, maybe you could view it in terms of a confession. I am not ashamed. The Apostle Paul gives us multiple places in Scripture where he makes this confession, whether you call it a confession or a profession or even a boast, I am not ashamed, Paul makes it. And my desire is that we could all walk out from this room tonight with less shame and more confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that one of the things which is often missing in our lives as uh, young people who desire to be involved in God's kingdom is that we're actually kind of ashamed we're very um, aware of the world looking at us. We, we feel shy. We feel embarrassed. All of these are kind of first cousins to the word ashamed. And so because we're not real confident in the gospel and we're definitely not real confident in our ability to share the gospel, it looks overwhelming to us to go out and confidently witness for Christ. And yet Paul says to us, I am not ashamed. I wonder tonight whether you are ashamed. 
I would like to help you this evening to move away from whatever shame you have and move you in the direction of confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I recognize that it is the power of God to anyone who believes. I mentioned to you last night, and I might be a little outdated because I have no idea whether plexus is still a thing. But if plexus, people laugh. Does that mean it's totally outdated or it's still a thing? It's kind of outdated. What's in now? <laughs> Lemongrass Spa. You don't know that I have a thing about Lemongrass Spa. All the Scent One alumni here, are here will tell you that I tease about that. This, thing, you know, Americans kind of get into things. Anyway, if you were able to lose 100 pounds with plexus, even if people chuckled every time, just like everybody chuckled when I said plexus, even if people chuckled, you would not be ashamed because it's the thing which helped you to lose 100 pounds, and that's not an easy thing. And so even while people go, oh, plexus, plexus, he's always talking about plexus. Yeah, but I lost 100 pounds. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I am a witness of how it changes people's lives. And tonight I would like to move all of us in that direction of having a little bit more confidence. I wonder whether you're ashamed. You know, when you're in a restaurant and you, you have a meal in front of you, you have the opportunity to run a flag of Christ's kingdom up the flagpole of your life. Or you have the opportunity to sort of rub your chin and start your meal. Have you ever done that? Thank you for this food, amen? Paul says, I'm not ashamed. When you walk the streets of our North American cities, do you feel embarrassed and, and, and shy because you have an obvious Christian testimony? Oh, don't be ashamed. Can't you realize that you and the gospel that you hold and the truths that you know are the last hope for society? Why should we be ashamed? Why should we be ashamed that we are some of the last people holding on to the truths of God's word, or at least we're privileged to hold a few more than many other people hold? In a world filled with lies, we have the truth, and we should cower? I'm not talking about walking proudly, but there's a difference between walking confidently as a representative of Christ and being proud. Sometimes I think we're too afraid of pride, okay? With due respect, the, one of the cardinal sins among the Anabaptist people is pride. That's what I've observed through many, many years interacting with hundreds and thousands of Anabaptist background people. We're terrified of pride. Pride is a sin we don't want to fall into. But don't mistake confidence in Christ and not being ashamed of the gospel for pride. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I stand up and proclaim the gospel with confidence because I have seen that it is the power of God that changes lives. I'm not stepping on your toes, I'm stepping on our toes, okay? We're afraid of being proud. 
We're afraid of people thinking that we're proud. I think about it when I'm standing up here and I'm doing all these antics and I think, oh, people can misjudge me and think I'm putting on a show up here. And really, like I said this, after, this morning, I would stand on my head if I knew how to stand on my head. If I thought that by standing on my head, you would get the truth of what I'm trying to communicate because the truth is paramount. This person and how you feel about me is nothing. The truth of God's word entering our hearts is what's important. I am not ashamed. I don't wish for you to walk the streets of your town with your nose in the air, hoity-toity, but I do wish that you could walk the streets of your town recognizing that we are the last hope for dying mankind and we were left on this earth to represent the only gospel, the only truth which can change people's lives. Amen. Soldiers in America generally like to fly in uniform. Have you ever been boarding a plane and they said, we'd like to, we're boarding our first class passengers and any active duty military personnel. And a lot of times you'll see one or two soldiers in uniform walk onto that plane. You know, the only time when American military men traveled out of uniform was during the Vietnam War because America turned on its soldiers and American soldiers kind of snuck back into their home country because people were ashamed of our soldiers and the soldiers were uh, embarrassed to be known as American soldiers. But generally, American soldiers wear their uniforms with pride and with confidence. We're American soldiers. You and I are envoys or ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should be able to do that without shame. Amen? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm quoting it, but let's just get a little bit of the context there. Romans chapter 1. We'll start reading from verse 14. Paul says, Romans 1.14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. I have a debt, Paul says, which I am endeavoring to pay. And that's a whole nother message. So we're not going to focus on that. But Paul says, I have a gospel debt and I am working as hard as I can. I'm putting in overtime. I'm scrimping. I'm making extra payments. I am in debt, a gospel debt. And I want to pay off that debt. I'm in debt to the barbarians, to the Greeks, to the wise, to the unwise. I'm paying off that debt. So, as much as in me is, which you understand if you've ever been deeply in debt, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just 
shall live by faith. Paul says, with everything that's in me, every bit of energy I have, every bone which is in my body, every effort that I can possibly make, I am going to preach the gospel and I'm willing to come preach the gospel in Rome. When you look at a map of the areas where Paul traveled in his missionary journeys, most of you have that in the back of your Bibles, Paul's first, second, third missionary journeys. He traveled over great distances. Now he says, I have a desire to come and preach in Rome and I'm going to do everything I can to preach the gospel in Rome. For I am not ashamed. Going around the known world, traveling as much as any man could possibly travel, and carrying the gospel with me is something that I am not ashamed of. I am happy to travel under the banner of Christ to Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he gives us the reason why he's not ashamed. Just a, a very basic explanation that basically the gospel works. The gospel changes lives. And because it changes lives, I'm not ashamed of it because I have observed its power. I think sometimes we are, as young people, less confident than we could or should be because we haven't seen the gospel work and change lives, maybe to the degree that we should. Maybe we're not as involved as we should be. Maybe we're not reaching out as we ought to be. And so there's a lack of confidence in the power of the gospel. One of the things which will build your spiritual strength and help you not to be ashamed is to overcome your fear and overcome your, your maybe um, the embarrassment that you feel and get out there and start sharing. Because as you share, the strength of the gospel will fill you and you'll have the opportunity to watch the gospel work. And when you have observed in, in your own life, watching the gospel change other people's lives, you will be able to stand and say with Paul, I'm not ashamed because I have seen the power of the gospel change lives. I'd like to tell you a few stories this evening. My goal in telling you these stories and giving you, you these little snapshots is to help you understand one of the ways in which we, we walk away from shame and towards a confident witness. We walk away from shame in sharing the gospel and towards a confident witness by acknowledging what the gospel does. Amen? So I want to tell you just a couple of stories of, of different ways that I have observed the gospel of Jesus working and maybe some of the things that have helped me to not be ashamed. Years ago, I was in a, a restaurant in Tomali buying lunch and there was another white man sitting over there at another table and I struck up a conversation with this man. He was a Dutchman from Holland. And we started chatting. This is many years ago when uh, President George W. Bush was uh, in office here in the state. So this would have been, I believe, the early 2000s. And so as we chatted a little bit, he told me, he said, you know, <clears throat> uh, my parents are Christian, but I'm not Christian. I said, okay, do your parents go to church? Well, for Christmas and Easter. I thought, okay, now I understand what kind of Christians your parents are. He said, but I'm an atheist. I said, okay. That's, a, that's, that's fascinating. Your parents go to church, but now you're an atheist. 
And he started describing to me a little bit about Dutch society. And, and I happened to know that the two main political parties in Holland are the Christian Socialists and the Christian Democrats. And I asked him, I said, why are the two main political parties in Holland referred to by the name Christian, and yet something like 80% of Dutch politicians are okay with uh, assisted suicide, for example, euthanasia, 80% are okay with it, but they're called Christian Democrats and Christian Socialists. He said to me, well, the name Christian in Holland just means, well, we're not another religion, so that must mean we're Christian. We're not a Hindu political party, so we must be a Christian political party. We're not a Muslim political party, so we're a Christian political party. And so I started to tell him a little bit about the history of Holland and the, the type of strong Christians that used to exist in Holland. And I told him what an irony it is that after all these years, now the, the, the vestiges are still left. It's still the Christian Democrats and the Christian Socialists, but there are almost no believers. There are very few people in Holland that go to church. So we chatted a little bit, and uh, he asked me where I was from, and I told him I was American. And he, when I told him I was American, he told me, he said, well, I hate your president, but I love your country. I thought, wow. I said, how can you hate my president and love my country? And he started to get little tears in his eyes. He said, well, my grandfather was a prisoner of war in a Nazi concentration camp. And it was American soldiers who finally liberated that camp and saved my grandfather's life and nursed him back to health. And so while I hate your president, I will always love your country. I thought, wow, that's my opening. So let me tell you the story about my father. And I gave, very, in very short, gave the story of my father and how that my father was saved out of a life of drugs and alcohol. And my father passionately hated children when he was in his early 20s before he became a Christian. He hated children. And then... I told him the story of how my father met Jesus through the word of God and how his life was terribly, you know, drastic, not terribly, drastically altered in every dimension. And I said, I'm one of eight children born to that man after he came in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, now I happen to be a Christian and I love Jesus, but even if I wasn't, don't you think I would have to be forever grateful for what the gospel did for my father? Just like you're saying you love America because it was American soldiers released your grandfather from a Nazi concentration camp. The gospel of Jesus Christ drastically altered my father's life and my life. He said, wow, yeah, I can see how you would feel that way. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm able to look back in my family history and recognize that before Christ and after Christ is a two drastically different existences. And I don't even know if I would be here if my father hadn't met Christ and decided that his heart was changed and he loved children and raised eight of us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that changes people's lives. I want to introduce you to the name of a, a saint now in heaven, a woman named Mary Steele. Mary Steele was a British woman 
I've mentioned her name to a couple of you. Uh, my team members here should remember her name. Mary Steele was a British woman who was a Bible translator in Ghana, worked with Wycliffe Bible translators. Mary Steele never married. She lived her entire life as a single woman, moved to Ghana when she was a young lady, and spent, I think, something like 60 years in Ghana as a Bible translator. <clears throat> when Mary Steele started Bible translation, there was no computer-assisted Bible translation. It was all done by, you know, sweat and, and grueling labor. When Mary Steele moved to northern Ghana, there was no road access to the areas where my tribe lives. But Mary Steele moved into the Konkomba tribe, which is the tribe that, that Christy and I have spent our lives reaching out to. She moved into the Konkomba tribe and started learning the language. She spent, I believe, two or three years learning the language only to discover that she had learned the wrong dialect and had to move to another village about um, 15 or 20 miles to the east and start over again and learn another dialect. Mary Steele translated the Konkomba New Testament. Mary Steele never married. She called her Bible translations her children. She did two, two tribes in Ghana received their Bibles through Mary Steele, and two other languages had Mary Steele as like the assistant translator to newer, younger translators. There are four New Testaments used by four tribes in Ghana because of Mary Steele. I met Mary Steele um, when I was a very new missionary. She was a very old missionary, and I met her one time in Tomale, and I, I just wanted to go up and shake her hand. You know, in my mind, it's like, oh, this is the woman, Mary Steele. And I met her and just thanked her for her work and was just showering her with praise, and she was like backing away from me. She's like, oh, I've done nothing. I'm glad it's a blessing to you. And I thought, wow. Someone who invested, I think the first language took 25 years for her to, to bring out the New Testament in that language. Before she died, she had done four of those Bibles. My tribe uses the Bible every day, translated by Mary Steele. The villages that I've reached out to, where we've preached the gospel, and there are now a couple dozen churches. In all of those churches, people carry the Bible that Mary Steele translated to go to church. We don't have other versions. We only have the Bible in that language. One Bible, one translation in that language. And that's true for the other tribes. What would motivate someone to spend 60 years of their life bringing the gospel to four forgotten tribes in Africa. That would be the gospel, wouldn't it? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. A gospel that is that powerful that someone would decide to spend 60 years of their life so that four tribes would have access to the gospel in their language. You know, Mary Steele went back to England shortly before she died and I haven't been to her grave, my guess is that she has some very small grave in some English church cemetery somewhere in the British countryside. And I'm guessing that at her funeral, there were a few old ladies, because 92, most of the people you would have grown up with have long since gone. There was probably just a few people at her funeral in England. But I was in Ghana. And those four tribes fought over who was going to have Mary Steele's funeral in Ghana. 
In Africa, we have funerals even when the person is not present. It's like what you would call a memorial. Those tribes argued over who's going to put on the funeral for Mary Steele because she was the hero of four tribes. And yet she died with very little, very little of note in England. But in Ghana, four tribes re recognized that she's the one who translated their Bible. Can you imagine what it will be like or what it was like for Mary Steele when she arrived in heaven? Four tribes there to welcome her. Can you imagine? Four tribes who recognize that they are in heaven largely because that woman dedicated her life to translating the word of God. I love a gospel that powerful and that motivating. I'm proud of a gospel that powerful and that motivating. I'm not ashamed of a gospel that would motivate a woman to give her entire life for four tribes in Ghana that no one in England even knows about. Do you think Mary Steele is disappointed in heaven? No way. No way. Because those tribes are in heaven. I have people in my church who died before Mary Steele died. When she arrived in heaven, there was a welcoming committee of four tribes. You could do a lot worse than that, Mary Steele. Die and go to heaven and have four tribes there to welcome you. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to another verse. Let's turn over to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy and chapter 1. First, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're reading from verse 7. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. When a spirit of fear is attacking you or overcoming you, it is not from God. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. That's the kind of attitude that I would love to see you young people walking the streets of your town with. Not pride, but power, love, and a sound mind. Then he says in verse 8, Be not thou therefore... Why is the therefore there? Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Because of this, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Because God has not given you that spirit of cowering fear, but He's rather given you a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. He says, don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord nor of me, his prisoner. You know, Paul talks about this a couple times. So-and-so came and was not ashamed of my chains. Because becoming friends with Paul through several periods of his life meant befriending a man who walked around with a guard and a chain. Chink, 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 
Chink, chink. Be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, the prisoner who's in prison because of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, Timothy. But rather, be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Don't think, I don't want to be close to Paul. They might mistake me for one of those people. Paul's in prison. He says, you rather join in and become a partaker. Verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Jesus, in, Christ, in Jesus Christ before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy, because in the gospel, he has now made manifest by the appearing of our, of our Savior who hath abolished death. Our Savior has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How could you possibly be ashamed of a gospel that brings light and immortality up here through the gospel? Life and immortality become possible through the gospel. Don't be ashamed of that. Life and immortality have come to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Paul is going into some, some length here with Timothy. It appears that there was, Timothy was facing some challenges with being ashamed of, of Paul and, and the fact that he was in chains and a little bit ashamed of the gospel. And so Paul puts on this defense of the gospel and says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me being a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. This is the gospel that has brought life and immortality to light. And I have been appointed as a minister of this gospel. And this is the reason why I'm suffering, Timothy. But hey, don't get me wrong. I'm not ashamed. I wear my chain with dignity. I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul says, Timothy, I'm advising you to not be ashamed, but while I'm advising you to not be ashamed of me being in chains, I want you to know that I am not ashamed. Yes, I have a guard that goes with me everywhere. Yes, I have no more privacy in my life. Yes, I've been known as a convict for years, but I want you to know, Timothy, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because I am a minister of a gospel which changes people's lives. I am the minister of a gospel which has made immortality possible. Anybody got a medicine that can beat that claim? This gospel makes immortality possible. So I'm not ashamed of it. And I don't want you to be ashamed of it either. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know whom I've believed. I am persuaded 
that I have not staked my life on something which will finally give way and disappoint me. I know whom I've believed in. I'm not ashamed. About two months ago, a young man came out from the village, from the villages where we ministered. So where we did our church planting work and where we have about 40 village churches is about three hours from where I live in Tomale. So a young man from one of those villages came to Tomale because he was very sick and they were trying everything they could do, both physical medicine and witchcraft medicine, and he wasn't getting better. And so he came to Tomale to stay with us and, and go to the hospital in Tomale to see if he could get help. He ended up being in the hospital for, I think, 41 or 42 days in the hospital. He, has a, he had a, a very bad infection on, of his spleen. They thought they were going to have to take his spleen out. But at, through the course of his weeks in the hospital, the doctor said, we need people to come and give blood for this young man. His blood is just water. I saw the, 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 the blood cell count. It was literally like water with a, just a few you know, fragments of red, red blood cells strung out throughout the, the, the water of his what is supposed to be blood. So we needed people to give blood. And we had this just really, really beautiful scenario in which a group of white and black young people went into the hospital to donate blood for this young man. One of the white young men who was donating blood fainted and they had to stop taking his blood. He hadn't had breakfast and he fainted there on the table. I just thought the picture was so beautiful. You know, maybe nobody else gets it quite the way I get it, but it, from my perspective, there's something really special about giving your blood. I mean, it, you, you are giving your life for another person. Obviously, you don't have to die in the process, but you are giving up a percentage of your life. So I reached out to the, uh, the, the, the American young man who had given his blood, and I thanked him. I just said, thank you for being willing to come in and give your blood. And he responded back to me. <clears throat> he, said, he said, oh, it's nothing. I serve a king who gave his blood for me. It's nothing for me to give my blood for somebody else. And in that moment, I thought, yeah, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ in shoe leather. I was just trying to say thank you. I just thought he was going to say, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, glad to help out. And he responds back with this, you know, miles deep foundational response. My king gave his blood for me and died in the process. I'm happy to give my blood for a brother. What does that? That's the gospel. You know, that's your gospel. That's the gospel that you and I believe in. That's the gospel that makes that kind of change in people's lives. Don't be ashamed of it. Be proud of it. And I think every single one of you here would probably be willing to give your blood also, especially when up against that kind of principle. How can I refuse to give a pint of my blood when the Lord Jesus bled to death for me? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That gospel is the power of God. Two weeks from now, Christy is going out, my wife is going out to the village um, for 
a graduation of three women's literacy classes that's going to be happening out in the village. Our Konkomba women have basically a zero percentage literacy rate. Some of the young girls who are going to school are now becoming literate in English, but if you look at women like 38, 30 years and above, there's basically no one who knows how to read. And so for years, our church leaders have been saying, our wives want to learn how to read. How can we teach our wives to read? And these are men who've learned to read the Bible, but their wives can't read the Bible. Can you imagine what it would be like to not be able to read? Many of our village churches have, have service every single night, just for a short time, because if nobody in the village can read, how do you have devotions? So you just gather together in the church. You know, they all live, you know, in a village close by. You just gather, sing two songs, read a chapter of the Bible. Sometimes there's no one in the village who can read well, so they will play the MP3 of the, that, the Konkomba Bible. Is, it's available in MP3. They'll play it out for everyone to listen to it, talk about it a little bit, and everybody goes home. That's what we would call devotions. But these women wanted to be able to read. And Christy and I have carried this on our heart for years, but we've been raising a family. Christy's been homeschooling, and we haven't been able to do it. So a few years ago, a single young lady from Kansas um, said that she had a burden to do that literacy work, and she joined our mission, uh, Tanya Yoder. And she's worked with us now for a couple of years teaching um, women's literacy. And she's ending three years of classes. They only do classes in the dry season because in the rainy season, our women are farming. But they're ending and having their graduation party for the three villages where the women have learned to read. Do you know how thrilled those women are to be able to take five verses of the Bible? It takes about five minutes to read five verses because this is very, very basic. But do you know how empowering it is when no one in your community can read to be one of the first five women that you've ever known, ever, ever in your life, to be able to pick up the Bible and read it? And their husbands stand there and cheer. What does that? The gospel. I, I think you, you kind of know where I'm going with every single one of these stories. I'm trying to warm your heart. I'm trying to make you say, oh, well, absolutely. That's the gospel. The medicine that I have available to me called the gospel is able to do that kind of miracles. Yes. And so in villages where there was absolutely no knowledge of Christ 20 years ago, you have husbands and wives who are now able to sit down and painstakingly read the word. Wow. And they're going to have the first women's literacy graduation. Do you know what they're going to do at the graduation? They're going to stand up and read the Bible. It's not like we have a newspaper in Konkumba. It's not like Little House on the Prairie has been translated into Konkumba. There is only the basic primers that teach, how to, teach people how to read, and then there's the Bible. So they're going to stand up and read the Bible and celebrate these women being able to read. Some of the first women in a whole county that can read the Bible. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that changes people's lives. We used to preach in a village years ago, a village called Mamali, 
And we, we had then, and we have now, a very small group of believers. And sometimes when we would go to preach there, whether I was the one preaching or my sent two students or some of our African leaders, we kind of got discouraged because you would go there, make a great effort, and you would preach to eight people. And that would be that. And then the next two, three weeks later, you'd go back and you'd preach to ten people. And it just seems like such a small group of people. But one night at the end of the service, the witch doctor of the community, a renowned juju man, wandered into the light and told the group that was gathered there, he said, I have been listening to your services. There's no electricity in this village. He says, I've been listening in the dark to your services for the last two years. I know the Bible stories that you've been telling. I want to walk God's road. And that's the words, that's the verbiage that our people use to, to mean turn to Christ. I want to walk God's road. And Grandfather Tapiji, as we all call him, got born again and fell in love with Jesus Christ and fell in love with sharing Bible stories. And that man became such an incredible Bible storyteller. We would gather for, for, for our training meetings or our, our men's meetings, and he would tell Bible stories. And they were real to him. He got really sick one time, and we thought he was dying. And after a couple weeks, he recovered his strength, and he came back to meet my family, and he told my wife, I wasn't present there that day, he told my wife that when he, when he was dying, he said he died, I don't know, he explained what he saw in heaven when he died. This man was so full of the delight of what he had seen in heaven, and God brought him back, and he lived for another couple of years, and now he's gone. This man was so delighted in what he had seen. He described the light of heaven and tried to describe the beauty of heaven. This is a man who lives in a, in a mud hut with a grass roof. It's a little hard to describe the beauties of heaven. What makes that kind of a change? The gospel. This is a man who was famous in many villages for the witchcraft that he had done. And his life was turned around and he became an incredible Bible storyteller. He changed his name from Tepiji to Luke in honor of the Centu student who had told all those Bible stories when he hid in the dark and listened. That's the power of the gospel. You can hide in the dark. You might not want to come out into the light. You might not want people to know that the famous witch doctor of the village is listening to those Bible stories told by a missionary trainee a sent to student, but it still changes your life. You hide out there, listen to those stories, and after a while, the power of the gospel shines in. Remember last night? If the lost, if the gospel is hid, it's hid to those that are lost, which Satan wants to keep them blinded, lest the light of the gospel should shine. Because if it shines in their hearts, it changes their lives. Let's turn to another verse, Philippians chapter 1. I'm encouraging us to carry the gospel with confidence and pride. Not pride in ourselves, please, but pride in the power of the gospel and confidence that it works. 
Incidentally, the man who we're quoting in all of these verses is the Apostle Paul. In Romans, he's not ashamed, but he's not in chains. In the verses we read in 2 Timothy, he's in chains. In the verses we're getting ready to read here in Philippians, he's facing death, but he's still not ashamed. Philippians and chapter 1. Let's start from verse 18, Philippians 1, 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Here's a man who's staring out over the abyss called death, and he says, I am planning to continue with boldness. I believe whether by life or by death, God's going to be magnified. I am not going to be ashamed, even if what I'm following, this gospel that I'm following, this gospel that I'm propagating, even if preaching this gospel leads to my death, I am planning to go to my death with boldness because I know that whether I live or I die, God is going to be magnified through the process. How do you beat a man like Paul? And I don't mean beat like hit. How do you overcome a man who says, oh, you're going to kill me. Great, I get to go to heaven. Oh, you're not going to kill me. Great, I get to stay and disciple people a little bit longer. Oh, you're just going to beat me up. Okay, beat me up. I'm joining Christ in his sufferings. Huh? Sitting in their rooms planning, how can we whoop this man? How can we break his influence? Paul. We've decided to kill you. Yes! That's wonderful. Been waiting for this. Oh, okay. I'm not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. Great! I can keep discipling with these chains on my feet. I can just keep discipling people. They just keep coming, and I'm running a little discipleship school under house arrest. Oh, you're not going to let me go. You're going to beat me up. I'm filling up what's left of the suffering of Christ. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not there, okay? I don't live there all the time. I live there sometimes. But I'm challenging all of us that what made Paul so unbeatable was his boldness and his belief in the power of the gospel that he represented. He says, I'm planning to go forward with boldness just like I always have. This sentence of death hanging over my head doesn't change my boldness. Don't expect me in the fading twilight of my life as I get closer to my death sentence to cower and hide. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I am going to go out with boldness just like I always have. Because God's going to be magnified whether by life or by death. What does that to a man? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what does that to a man.
I wish you could see a wedding in one of our village churches. I know that weddings are pretty commonplace things for us here. We kind of expect purity and courtship. We kind of expect the couple to marry in a simple but beautiful wedding. But Christian weddings have been such an incredible miracle in our village settings where couples are encouraged to live promiscuous lives. It, it, I don't know how to explain it to you here without getting really graphic and, and dragging you through a lot of details that might not be necessary for you to listen to, but promiscuity and immorality are culturally demanded of any man or woman that's going to get married. I'll just keep it that simple. So now the gospel of Christ comes in Maybe you could say amen. <laughs> okay, I mean, you already know where we're going to go with this because you know what God's word says and you know how the gospel works and you know that there's no way that the gospel encounters a culture where immorality is demanded and just, okay, well, we'll just have to kind of, you know, make room for some immorality in our marriages because this is the way they get married. You know that's not what I'm going to say. Do you realize just by that simple assertion that you all know where I'm going to go with this, you are, you are elevating the power of the gospel that you already know that when the gospel encounters a culture that has something which is so sinful and evil, you just know that one or two or 10 or 20 years later, the gospel will have transformed that part of their culture. I mean, we just, we just know that. We expect that. Of course, when the women in India, when the families in India come to Christ, of course, widow burning is going to go out. Of course. Of course. Of course, what? What other power known to mankind, what other government, what other influence has been able to change every single place that it's gone anywhere in the world? The gospel. You have a lot to be proud of as Christians. Do you realize that almost every single language in the world was written down, given its orthography or given its letters for the first time by Bible translators? Do you realize that? Who else is translating? Who else is spending 20 years to give a language a written form? The New York Times? We'd like to be able to publish this newspaper in a new language in Manchuria. No, it's only Christians motivated by a desire to give the gospel and the word of God in the languages of the people that motivates people to spend their lives translating the Bible. Almost every language has been written down by Bible translators. There are numerous closed countries where Wycliffe Bible translators cannot go as Bible translators but they work as translation organizations and the governments of some of these countries like, excuse me, like for example, Venezuela, which has a socialist government, they will contact the undercover Wycliffe Bible translator missionaries. They will contact them and say, you are the people who know how to translate into the 20 tribal languages of our nation. We would like you to translate the constitution of our nation. We would like you to translate 
the pledge of our nation. We would like you to translate the human rights laws of our nation into all of these tribal languages. Do you realize when they do that, they are effectively bowing to the word of God and to the gospel? They never translated. They never wrote down. They never learned these tribal languages. Who did? Missionaries! Motivated by what? The gospel! You ought to wear that as a badge of honor that you and I represent the Christian faith, which has been the force changing societies and bringing literacy and language and written forms of language to tribal groups all over the world. But I digress. You already knew that when I said that the Concomba culture necessitated immorality before marriage, you knew that the Church of Jesus Christ in Concomba land would not tolerate that. Wow, has it taken time and a lot of preaching. But in the last three years, we've finally gotten to the place, probably the first one was about six years ago, but in the last three years, we've finally gotten to the place where our young people are growing up having been taught purity. And I think we've had something like 30 weddings in the last three years. And about 30 of those, out of those 30 weddings, about 22 of them were what we call weddings. In, the, in Ghana, they refer to it in the church. They refer to it as a wedding if the couple is pure. And if the couple has been in sin or involved in immorality earlier on, they refer to that as a blessing. The church still marries the couple, but they've gone through discipline, and so it's referred to as a blessing. It's not my, it's not my choice. It's just the, the way the African church has chosen to sort it out. Do you have any conception of what a quantum leap forward it is? to have a couple stand up in front of their community and normally all the in-laws and the village gathers when they stand up there and marry in purity? It's, I cannot communicate to you what it does in my heart to be able to look at people that I've been discipling for all these years and watch them beginning to give glory to God in a way like that. Some of our cultures, we have something we call a unity candle. Have you ever seen that at a wedding where they take two candles and put them together? We don't do that candle thing in Ghana. We're pretty concerned that that might be viewed as some kind of a juju. So in our services, partway through the, at the end of the service, the couple comes forward to the front and we have three bowls sitting up there on a table. I'm just giving you a little picture of their culture and what it's like. Three bowls sitting up on the table. Two bowls are filled with water and one bowl is empty. And they have the, the young man pick up his bowl of water, have the young lady pick up hers. Tell the people that these two bowls of water represent their individual lives, which are joining together into something new called a, a marriage on this day. And then the young man pours his water, and the young lady pours her water into the bowl. And then because Africans just really like these kind of things, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, they, the preacher normally says, we'd like to see if there's anyone who can come up here and now separate the water, put his water back in his bowl, put her water back in her bowl. And because Africans love these little story kind of acting things, there's usually one to four people who will come up there, usually one old woman, usually one old man, one of the friends, and they come up there and they come up confidently, they take that bowl of water, they shake it around, they look at it, they turn it this way, that way, 
and finally put the bowl down and say, I'm sorry, I can't. And they go sit down and everybody cheers. And another person says, I think I can. And they come up and they try to separate. And then they finally, everybody gives up. And the pastor says, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Yes! And that's as controlled as I know how to do that. I mean, isn't that thrilling? Isn't it thrilling that after the gospel has encountered a culture for 15 years, finally we get to a place where couples are marrying in purity and all the unbelieving in-laws are all there to witness and they see this example of one flesh played out in front of them and a Bible verse quoted over top of it. That is just as good as it gets. And honestly, sometimes when I witness it, I think I'm just going to rapture right there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How could I be ashamed of a gospel that has come in and revolutionized the tribe? Amen. How could I be ashamed of it? Why wouldn't I be confident? Why wouldn't I be bold? Why wouldn't I be motivated to want to share it? I'm praying that these stories and these verses tonight will let you walk with your head a little bit higher, not in pride, but in confidence. Like Paul said, I'm going to continue with boldness like I have always done. Don't think that this death sentence hanging, hanging over me is going to make me whimper and cry and cower. I'm going to continue with boldness as I have always done. I'm praying that these, these, the sharing that we've had here tonight will let you young people walk away realizing that you have nothing to be ashamed of and everything to be proud of in the power of the gospel. Oh, but people look at us strangely. Really. My family and I had the privilege to spend 24 hours in London. Hmm, 2015, I believe. And we got to go to Buckingham Palace and see all those guards. And I know you've all seen pictures of it. Do you know how strangely those guys are dressed? I mean, they got, they got this like, weird, really, really unique uniforms. Do you think they feel shy or embarrassed to wear those uniforms? No. They are proud because of what they represent. And you ought to be bold and proud because of what you represent. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the life-changing force. It is the life-giving medicine. It is the gospel which has finally brought life and immortality and made it possible for human beings. How could you be ashamed of that? I want us to close with Mark chapter 8. I'm a little bit reticent to close with this verse because this has been totally positive and upbeat the whole evening. I prefer to motivate. I prefer to pull us forward. But sometimes we actually need a kick in the seat. And the way I view the Bible is that the Bible is overwhelmingly positive and visionary. However, if we're not willing to obey, the Bible does also include those kicks in the seat, if you will. So in the, in the book of Mark in chapter 8, we're reading 
from verse 34. Mark 8, 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? God is, Jesus is here laying out the incredibly high stakes. He says, you know, you, you try to hang on to your life. You try to save your life. You try to preserve your life. And you're just going to find it filtering out between your fingers. You cannot hang on to it. On the other hand, when you choose to lose it by giving it to the Lord Jesus, by saying as Paul did, Lord, I was thinking about that the other day. You know, there are people who say there's a difference between getting born again and making Jesus your Lord. Well, Paul got it all in one batch. When he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he opened up with Lord, Master, Director, the one who tells me what to do. What should I do? He got both of them at once, and I think that's what's biblical. The stakes are high here. Then verse 38 says, Whosoever therefore, because, this is how high the stakes are, because those who hang on to their life ultimately lose it, and those who are willing to lose their life for my sake and the gospels are the ones who find it and save it. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The context here is us being ashamed and God being ashamed. The context here is us deciding, I want to hold on to my life. I have my identity. Identity is really huge for all human beings, but it's overwhelmingly huge for young people. My identity. These clothes represent me. This game represents me. This is the way I like to eat. This is the kind of personality I'm trying to project. I, I, this is my identity. Jesus said, you try to hold on to that, and in an effort to hold on to your identity, you're ashamed of Christ and his words. In this sinful and adulterous generation, when he comes back, he'll be ashamed of us. So I think that warning is fitting. We can hardly be biblical in looking at the subject of not being ashamed if we don't look at the flip side. I'm calling us positively, don't be ashamed. But if we decide, no, I'm still going to be ashamed. I'm still going to hold this gospel, but I don't want it to shine out of my life. I, I don't want people to see that I'm an obvious Christian. I, I surely don't want to be an obvious radical Christian. If we choose to live ashamed of the gospel, he will be ashamed of us. Jesus said, in this sinful and adulterous generation, we probably, if we could live back then, we would think it was pretty good compared to what we're facing now. This sinful and adulterous generation needs confident, bold, proud in the gospel witness, 
witness. That's what it needs. And I want to encourage you young people, starting from here, starting from your Jerusalem to your Judea to your Samaria to your uttermost parts of the earth, be bold. You have nothing to be ashamed of in being known as a radical Christian and everything to be proud of because the gospel is changing lives, has changed lives, will continue to change lives. There is no force like the force of the gospel. Don't be ashamed. Let's stand to our feet, please. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who was bold, who would not cower, who would not bow, who was not ashamed, but rather witnessed boldly to the gospel because he believed and he saw and he experienced that the gospel is the power of God changing lives. Father, we acknowledge that we have been ashamed. There are times where we sincerely are trying to hide our light under a bushel so that we're not too obvious. Lord, forgive us. This world needs your light now more than ever. And we've hidden it. Father, I pray that you would speak into the hearts of our young people, especially here this evening, and call them to a bold and fearless witness. Young people, while we're just standing here and waiting before the Lord, if, if God has placed on your heart a conviction as we shared tonight. If the Holy Spirit has touched your heart and you know that God is speaking to you tonight about the fact that you have been ashamed, one of the greatest ways that you can walk away from tonight having made a difference in that area of your life, having made a choice not to be ashamed, is for you to respond to God's Word tonight in some way. I'd like you to respond tonight by just coming forward and kneeling here. I don't know that we have prayer rooms. I don't know that we need to counsel with you, but we make a, a powerful witness to ourselves and to the spirit world that God has spoken into our lives when we acknowledge that by making an action. I would like you to make that action tonight. Right now, if God has spoken to you about you being ashamed of the gospel, why don't you just come forward and kneel and uh, pray and lay this before the Lord, acknowledge that you've been ashamed of the gospel, the powerful gospel, the life-changing gospel. Repent from that and ask God to fill you with a love and a confidence and a bold witness for the gospel. Lord Jesus, we pray acknowledging that we've shamed you by being ashamed of you. After all that you've done for us, Lord, we've been ashamed of the gospel. After all the ways that the gospel has changed our lives 
and we've read and seen the gospel changing other lives, we've been ashamed. Father, forgive us for taking something so amazing and hiding it. Father, we repent from being ashamed of your gospel. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. Fill us with your spirit and enable us to be a bold and courageous witness to the truths of your word, Father. Just talk to the Lord quietly. No one's listening to you. You can pray out loud. No one's listening to you, each one speaking to the Lord on their own. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him what's on your heart tonight. Be honest with God about what he has spoken to you this evening. If we try to hang on to our lives, we're going to lose them. I'm thinking of the words of a song, and I don't know if you know this song, but I'll try to sing it for you. <clears throat> All I once held dear, built my life upon all this world reveres. And wars to own All I once thought gain I have counted lost Spent and worthless now Compared to this Knowing you Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord, and I love you. Lord, and I love you, Lord. Father, fill our hearts with love for you, that the things of this world and our identity becomes spent and worthless compared to the value of knowing you and making you known, Father. Work in the hearts and lives of each of these young people, Father. Send them back to their places with a greater commitment and a greater awareness of the power of the gospel and a greater confidence in it. I will be true to Thee, Lord. I'll